Sentire Media. Hello everyone and welcome to A History of Italy. Episode 16, Italy after Charlemagne. So, here we are back to our regular episodes after a trip to Bologna for a couple of special editions on that city. Now, if you remember from episode 15 a while back, Charlemagne was roaming around under the crown that Pope Leo III had stuck on his head, whether the emperor wanted it or not. So, what do you do when you've just finished sticking various bits of an empire together? And mind you, quite a big empire. Well, you divide it up, of course. In the year 806, the empire was divided among Charles's three sons, Pippin, Louis and Charles Jr., Pippin got Aquitaine and Italy, and that's the bit we're interested in. Louis got a large chunk of Bavaria and Alemannia, south of the Danube, and Charlemagne's favourite, Charles, got all the rest. Unfortunately, just four years later, Pippin died, and he was soon followed by Charles. The only son left was Louis, known as the Pious. Charles raised him to the throne, and on the 10th of September, 813, Charlemagne himself, in front of the congregation of Frankish counts and bishops, placed the imperial crown on his son's head. The Pope had not even been consulted, never mind invited. His surprise crowning hobby was short-lived. However, once had been enough to influence things for a long time to come but not this time around. After the ceremony, Charles and his son embraced and had a good cry. Let's stop now and have a look at our old buddy Charlemagne. First of all, he was getting to be just that, old. He had been born on the 2nd of April, 742, and so he was now past 70. It may be the new 60 nowadays, but back then it was pretty good going indeed. He was also suffering from gout. Plus, there were omens. Now, here's the bit where a history of Italy, we throw back careful history and pick up the more exciting, albeit perhaps not uh, accurate, history of contemporary Carolingian reporters. Charlemagne wakes up in the early morning hours for his daily horse ride, galloping into the sunrise. At a certain point, he's dazzled by a shooting star streaking through the sky. His sword is mysteriously smashed into pieces. The lance he holds is thrown far away, and the emperor himself is thrown from his horse. The omen is clear. The days of Charles the Great are drawing to a close. In early November, 813, the emperor came down with a mysterious fever and took to his bed. As the new year came in, he did not get any better. At the end of January, surrounded by his beloved daughters, he felt that his time was coming. He had the Archbishop of Colm, Ildebald, administer his last rites, and on the 28th of January, 
Charlemagne died too weak even to make the sign of the cross. The death of its founder was the beginning of the end of the Carolingian Empire. Now a single man was in charge of the whole big lot, Louis, and he was quite a character. He was prone to melancholy, had a nasty, cruel streak, and was a religious bigot. He got married, but neglected his husbandly duties to go and listen to Mass, so he preferred a good prey to a bit of slap and tickle with the missus. It seems he actually burst into tears during the wedding. He also liked a good cry, evidently. On his deathbed, his father had asked him to promise that he would take care of his sisters. But then, when the old emperor was no more, he had their heads shaved and stuck them in a convent. Thanks, bro. One of the first orders of business was to sort out his own succession, as his father had done. But we'll talk about that in a bit. Another order of business was to sort out Italy. So back home we come. Now, you remember that Italy had been given to Charlemagne's son Pippin, but he had died in 810. He had left a son, Bernard. Now, I'm not 100% clear on the issue with Bernard, but I'll lay it out as I've understood it. So, here's Bernard thinking, well, Dad's dead. I'm the son, so I guess that makes me the king of this bit of the empire. Apparently, he had no right to do this. Everything was supposed to go back to Louis. It also seems that the bishops of Milan and Cremona were egging him on. Sort of, go on, Bernie, take the crown, and nobody's looking. What could happen? It'll be fine. Charlemagne had been alive at the time, so I wonder if he had anything to say about it. Indeed, other sources don't mention the whole inheritance business at all, but state that what happened between Bernard and his uncle Louis was due to a rebellion organized by the nephew, who was unhappy with the way Louis had set up his empire in 817, the division we spoke about above, which meant that Bernard would have to be a vassal to one of his cousins, Louis's sons. This is a more likely explanation, because it seems Louis actually used Bernard to go down to Rome on his behalf to investigate some goings-on there in 814, with those increasingly naughty Roman noble families and their attempts to control the papacy. Whatever the reason may have been, here's what happened. Friendly old Uncle Louis declared war on Bernard, and made his way down with an army and a good load of priests, because... It never hurts to have a couple of priests around. Bernard met him with just a few hundred men. The rest of the army had scarpered and joined the enemy. The encounter occurred at Chalon-sur-Sarzon, quite away into modern-day France, as you can hear from the terrible pronunciation. Bernard fell to his uncle's feet, kissed his right one repeatedly, and begged for mercy. Louis had him arrested and set up a special commission that found him guilty and sentenced him to death. Thanks for the mercy, uncle. The bishops of Milan and Cremona were also deposed and sent off into monasteries. The night before Bernard was to be executed, some priests went to Louis and convinced him to commute the sentence into blinding. In this way, he wasn't killing a king, but definitely taking him out of the picture. Unfortunately, the blinding went horribly wrong, 
and Bernard died after three days of agony. He was buried in Milan, and it seems that his uncle had the following inscription put on his tomb. Here lies Bernard, the saint. So he may have really regretted what he'd done to his nephew, and later on in life he also did penance for it. But then he proceeded to seek revenge on the brothers of this saint, who hadn't even participated in the rebellion. All of this came about in the year 819. It had been two years before that, 817, that Lewis had organized his succession, as we mentioned above. He also had three sons, Lothar, the firstborn, who was associated to the throne, then another, Pippin, another Pippin, who got Aquitaine, and finally another Lewis, known as the German who got Bavaria. So, all sorted this time, right? No messing around, right? Well, just a year after, in 818, the wife of Louis the Pious, Ermengarde, died. He was devastated, to the point that he wanted to renounce the crown and go into a monastery. Interestingly, it was not the first time that he had expressed the desire to go into a monastery. After all, they didn't call him the pious for nothing. The first time around, he had been persuaded not to by his father, who probably would have been better to have let him go. After the death of his wife, it was the counts who persuaded him. They called up a big diet, which didn't mean they started eating less and exercising, but the diet was the deliberative and legislative body of the Holy Roman Empire. So they called the diet and invited 100 lovely young ladies. Among these, there was one in particular that caught his eye, a certain Judith. She was a clever woman, although her morals were not really up to scratch, and she was even accused later of adultery. In any case, Lewis adored her and would do anything to make her happy. In 823, they had a child, Charles, known as Charles the Bald. Now, apparently, this was an ironic name due to the fact that he was particularly hairy, or possibly due to the fact that he started out without land, which seems a bit of a stretch, but, you know. Anyway, he came after the empire had been divided up among his three half-brothers, and Mum wanted him to have his junk. So Daddy Lewis obliged. The half-brothers were not at all happy, and soon it was war. The clergy didn't want to miss out on the fun, so they got involved as well. We have to remember that the clergy at the time also held administrative power and lands, and that was another of the issues that was bubbling in the pot and would boil over in centuries to come. The Pope at the time was Gregory IV. Pope Leo III, the crowning trickster, had died in 816, and a quick succession of popes had followed. Stephen IV had lasted only a year until 817. Then Paschal I had lasted until 824, so a little bit more, seven years. Then Eugene II had uh, done the next four years till 827. Valentine had done 40 days. And then we get to Gregory IV. He sided with Lothar, the eldest son of Louis, against the emperor, and actually excommunicated the emperor. Some of the bishops who had sided with the emperor then excommunicated the pope. At this point, the pope thought it might be a good idea to try and get together and sort out things diplomatically with a good old chinwag. But the day before the meeting, 
the army of Louis abandoned him and sided with the enemy. He was alone and isolated. His goose was cooked. He was accused of being a murderer, of having committed sacrilege for recruiting troops during Lent. That's a bit interesting. That you'd have to wait for the end of Lent if you wanted to actually go to war or anything. It's like you say to the other army, "Sorry, hold on a minute. We can't recruit in Lent." But anyway, he was stripped of all his titles and the insignia and exiled to a monastery. He was finally where he had wanted to be all along. But the irony was, at this time, he didn't want to be there. At least he didn't want to be without his beloved wife Judith and his favorite son. The non-rebellious son, Charles the Bald, or not bald, or whatever. The very messy history of the civil wars dragged on even after Lewis died and was out of the picture. Indeed, in 840 he died. It seems that in his will he confirmed the donation of Pippin that had created the Papal States, as well as the donation of Charlemagne, which had confirmed it. And it seems that he even added Sicily into the bargain. However, there was a little problem. You see, Sicily was not his for the giving. Neither did it belong to the remaining Lombards or the Byzantines or the Papal States. It belonged to someone else altogether, who had taken it while we were busy following what was going on up north. But we'll come to that next time. For now, as always, I want to thank you very, very much for listening. I did a couple of thank yous during the special Bologna episodes, but I don't know if everybody is following both the regular and special and interview episodes. So I'll take the opportunity again to really, really thank Sean Fox, who, as well as having a pretty cool name, is the first Patreon supporter. So thank you very much, Sean, for that. And I would also love to thank. Our two first reviewers from lovely Canada and the good old USA, and they are Count Fox twenty seven and Chinese Girl's husband. Thank you very very much for your lovely reviews. As always, you can get in touch with us. Hello at a history of Italy dot com at the same URL a history of Italy dot com. You can click through to our social media, Facebook, or to our. YouTube page where we have a couple of documentaries on Italian cities and a new one about the Cervi brothers, an important story of Italian resistance. And if you're really, really feeling generous, there is also a donate button on the site. Once again, thank you very much to everyone for listening, and until next time, arrivederci. Sentire media. Hey, podcast producers and show hosts! Do you want to join a podcast network that celebrates all things Italian? At Sentire Media, we understand the allure of Italy and its unique culture. Our devoted team of hosts and producers are all driven by their shared passion for Italy, and we work tirelessly to create the best lifestyle podcasts and content that will whisk you away to the very heart of Italy.
With us, you can savor the mouth-watering flavors, get lost in the stories from the past, break down the cultural barriers, and truly immerse yourself in the vibrant traditions of this intoxicating country. If you have a great podcast idea or are already in production and would like to join Sentire Media, head over to sentiremedia.com, that's S-E-N-T-I-R-E media.com, and find out how to submit your show.